The What Are We Doing podcast and the Aquatic Biosphere Project acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Well, the snow has melted. We're starting to come out of our winter slumber. And a lot of people are using this COVID-19 pandemic to switch to growing their own foods. Now, being spring, everyone's starting to plan their gardens. And I wonder how many people are thinking about what kind of pests they might have to be dealing with come summer. Now, we're fortunate up in my neck of the woods, up here in Edmonton, that we don't have that many pests. Don't get me wrong, we do have pests, but we don't have anything like some other countries and continents around the world. Imagine you are a subsistence farmer in the Horn of Africa. Your family relies on the crops that you produce and the livestock that you graze on your land, or maybe it's the entire community shares a a large piece of land. And you're really getting excited because it's about to become the rainy season. You're expecting the first rains any minute now. You see your first cloud on the horizon. A dark cloud is coming towards you and you get so excited because the rains are finally coming. You feel a little bit differently though when you see that the cloud changes direction and makes a beeline straight for your field. Today on the podcast, we're talking about the worst migratory pests the world knows. They cause mass devastation. They can travel immense distances and affect millions of people. Today's episode, we're talking about desert locusts, why they're such a problem, and how climate change is just making things worse. Air. Vasser. Bunny. G. Moana. Omi. Tubi. Agua. Low. Enzio. Nihu. Nui. Nui. Roda. Miri. Echi. Chai. Shui. Maji. Wai. Nero. Aqua. Roda. Water we doing and how can we do better your one-stop shop for everything water related from discussing water its use and the organisms that depend on it for all the global issues that you really never knew all had to do with water i'm your host david evans from the aquatic biosphere project and i just want to ask you something what are we doing and how can we do better So, a lot of you may be thinking right now, well, locusts, aren't they just grasshoppers? Aren't they just the same things that I have hopping around in my front lawn? Do they really cause that much of an issue? They are really closely related species groups, and so they do look really similar, but they are different. And they have one really big feature that 
really points out just how different they are. So locusts have a weird superpower, let's say. They can reproduce really, really quickly. When they find themselves surrounded by so many other locusts, it's like a switch goes off in their head and they completely change how they act. It's called being in a gregarious state. Not only do they change how they act, but they also change color. They become more colorful. They're usually pretty slow before they're in a gregarious state, but they begin to move a lot faster and they begin to be attracted to each other. And it's not just locusts that are already out there that we're concerned about. Locusts can reproduce really, really quickly. How quickly, you might ask? Um, A locust lives about three months, and it can reproduce in that time um, about 20-fold. So that means at the end of three months, you've got 20 times the number of locusts. But it's exponential, which means it just jumps up in time. So after six months, you've got 400 times the number of locusts. You know, after a year, you've got 160,000 times um, the number of locusts that you started with. So, so, you know, that obviously starts to explain, you know, how, the, how they form swarms. This is Dr. Keith Cressman, the Senior Locust Forecasting Officer for the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization. So that's a lot of big words. Keith, can you explain to us what you really do and why your job is so important? My job basically in FAO is to operate the organization's global um, desert locust monitoring and early warning system. So basically keeping tabs on where the locusts are throughout the world and then forecasting what they're going to do. So kind of like a weather forecast, but in this case, it has to deal with um, desert locusts. Now, the reason Keith's job is so important is because these locusts, they're not only a problem to a few people. They're a problem to many, many countries. So their main method of getting around is just flying up really high in the air and then going wherever the wind takes them. So this takes them up to 150 miles every day. And then when they see some nice juicy crops or or some lush vegetation down on the ground, then they just fly down and devour it. Oh yeah, did I mention that desert locusts eat their entire body weight every day? Oh man, my grocery bill. Ooh, I hate to say how much that would be. Now that doesn't really seem to be that big of a deal until you realize the scale and number of actual insects we're talking about. Do you think, Keith, you might be able to give us a bit of a reference to help us understand how big of an issue this might be? For instance, about a year ago in northern Kenya, there was a swarm that was about 35 miles um, long by about 15 miles wide. 35 miles long by 15 miles. That's the size of the country of Luxembourg, which is a really small country in, in Europe. But still, That is crazy. And that was one single swarm. So that was like covered. The whole area is like covered with, with locusts. And so, oh my gosh! Okay, apart from you know, you know uh, how big they can get and how, f- how much they can quickly they can multiply or how far mm-hmm. they can migrate, you know the big problem is how much they can eat. Right, right. This is the thing because locusts eat everything. You know they don't prefer certain crops; they will just eat anything that's around. And of course, they like the natural vegetation in the desert. But when they finish that, then they get into the farms, you know, into the 
mm-hmm. farmers that are growing cereal crops and then fruits and vegetables and you know even coffee plantations st- stuff like that if you just imagine um, a swarm the size of Manhattan right New York City and and that's not a big swarm for locusts in one day that swarm will eat the same amount of food as everybody in California and New York everyone in California and New York in one day will eat the same amount of food that that swarm would consume oh my goodness that's that's crazy so the the swarm the size of Luxembourg yeah it would eat eat the same amount of food as everybody in Kenya oh my goodness in one day in yeah. one day well that is absolutely terrifying <laughs> so so this is why you know this comes back to the importance of good monitoring of early warning of decent forecasts and try to you know not let get these things out of control all right so i have to be honest when i was first finding out about this issue i couldn't understand why i hadn't heard more about it it just seems to be such a a humanitarian issue an environmental issue uh, every social factor that I thought I should have heard a lot about it. This locust invasion is putting millions of people at risk of starvation. And we're not even talking about the effects of COVID-19. It's a crisis within a crisis. It's the worst locust invasion in a generation. Locusts need certain environmental factors to be able to provide them the perfect habitat so they can grow to huge numbers. And this is why we don't have plagues every year. At this point of the podcast, you're probably wondering, but David, this is a podcast about water. Why are we talking about desert locusts? Well, it turns out that desert locusts, the one thing they really need to be able to kickstart that life cycle and grow to the gregarious plagues that swarm across Africa and Asia... What they need is water. The rainfall is a trigger. Unusually heavy rain. It could be very short in duration, but very heavy. That then allows the sandy soil in the desert to be wet for the egg laying and then allows for for the natural vegetation to to pop out of the ground and and become green to provide the shelter and the food for the locusts. So, so that's the driver. You know, normally it doesn't rain much in the desert. So that's why we don't have many problems with desert locusts. But when it does rain, um, it's not a guarantee we're going to have a, a problem with the desert, but it just it increases the, the, the likelihood that we're going to have a problem. So if we look back at the, the current upsurge that we have now, which basically started um, two years ago in, in mid-2018 from two cyclones, and, and they brought really heavy rains to, to a place what we call the empty quarter in Saudi Arabia. That's exactly what it is. It's one of the most emptiest places on this planet. There's nothing there except for skyscraper sand dunes. There's no towns. There's no villages for like, you know, 500 miles. You know, there's nothing. No Facebook, no internet connectivity, yeah. Uh, no podcasts, you know. So, yeah, why would why would we want to go no, there? No, yeah. no. <laughs> we wouldn't. But obviously, the, the locusts went there because of those cyclones, and it was really weird because you know normally there's like one cyclone a, a year at the most. 2018, we had about four cyclones, and two of those cyclones dropped rain in the exact same place. One in May, and then one about six months later. So just when the vegetation would have been drying out in that place in the desert, here comes you know cyclone number two. 
And of course, because it was the empty quarter, you know, nobody could get there to check to see if there's locusts and if there were, they couldn't do any type of treatments. So it was kind of like a club med holiday for the locusts for nine full months. So remember my numbers at the beginning of the show here. So nine months, that that means roughly about 8,000 times the number of locusts. It's these strange cyclones and their weird behavior that caused this recent upsurge of locusts. Now, as the climate changes, some areas will get more rain, some areas will get less rain. We're likely to get stronger storm events. And if these storms end up going into the open desert quarter, well, we're likely to get more locust swarms. So it's pretty likely that we haven't seen the last of these locusts. In fact, we're still dealing with the current upsurge, and they're not going away anytime soon. Locusts have been around for a very long time. There's records from Egypt, they're mentioned in the Bible, plagues of locusts of biblical proportions. They even love really hot temperatures, so they're probably going to do just fine. Dealing with the climate changing and the global population increasing, we have locusts that are jeopardizing our food sources. We're starting to have a lot of cards stacking up against us. The other thing with climate change, which we don't know very much about yet, is what's going to happen to the wind patterns on the planet? Locusts, they migrate with the wind. You know, they're not like a bird that can fly in any direction. So it's basically they're victims of the wind. So if those wind patterns happen to change, and imagine, you know, temperatures are warming, and we get these kind of, you know, more frequent uh, rainfall events, that could open up new habitats for the locusts. Desert locusts could be more often seen in southern Europe for example, or other parts of Asia. Probably not North America, because they'd have to cross the Atlantic, and that, that's really tough for them to do. All right, so have I painted enough of a doomsday scenario for you yet? So Dr. Cressman is doing a lot of work, actually, on the control side of things. And part of his job with predicting where these locusts will be prospering is conveying that information to groups on the ground in all of the different countries that are affected so that they can respond to invasions of locusts when they're still small so we have a chance of actually combating them and stopping them before they get out of control. Locust swarms are kind of like a forest fire. You want to attack it when it's really small because you have the best chance of putting out the fire right at the source before it gets too big and you really can't deal with it. Part of the reason that we haven't had large plagues of locusts in the last 70 years is because of work, like the work that Dr. Cressman is doing to actually be a quick reaction force to go and put out the locust fires whenever they pop up. This has really been a game changer in how we can prevent large scale plagues of locusts as we've had throughout history. Dr. Cressman, do you mind just explaining a bit about what we actually do on the ground to prevent locusts from becoming a swarm? Right. I mean, obviously, there, there's two factors here. One is first, you got to find the locusts. And then second, you, you, you know, you should be able to, to treat them. In the desert areas of northern Africa, ma- many of these places are becoming unsafe even, even to get into. So it's the countries themselves who are responsible for, for monitoring their own locusts and for doing the control operations. So it's not that we have some UN, you know, glorified kind of you know, rescue team that's going to come in there, parachute in there, and do that for them. Um, you know, use satellites to detect the green vegetation and the, and the rainfall in the desert. 
Um, we use, you know, um, tablets connected to, to satellites for, for real-time data transmission, you know, all this kind of high-tech stuff, which sounds really cool. And it is really cool for sure. Um, but it's worked. I mean, it, the, you know, the, the point is that, you know, with these new technologies that we harness, you know, it has reduced, you know, the, these um, um, plagues. You know, even in, in, in their own countries, that they can't reach all of the areas because of an increasing amount of insecurity. And, and you can think of northern Mali, you can think of Libya, you can think of Darfur, you can think of Tigray now in, in Ethiopia, um, Yemen, um, you know, Iran, Iraq, you know, places that you've kind of heard about in the news that aren't very safe. And many of these are, 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 are locus habitat. Once teams on the ground, and the best way, of course, is in a Land Rover, um, you just go out driving in the desert looking for green areas and seeing if there's any locus. That sounds pretty which fun. Which is really fun, yeah. <laughs> I've done a lot of that. <laughs> um, but w- once you see them kind of concentrating in groups, then that's the time, obviously, to spray them. Um, we have chemical pesticides that are used, and we have biological pesticides, a so fungus that only attacks locusts and grasshoppers. When, you know, the teams find these locust concentrations in the desert, they can treat it just with a backpack sprayer, or maybe if it's a little bit bigger with a sprayer, you know, on the back of their pickup truck, you know, that works really well. But if they miss that, or, you know, if the areas are just like too big and they don't have enough teams, then you have to go to something bigger. And that means aircraft. So the good news is that we have people like Dr. Keith Cressman who are out there working to understand where the environmental conditions are just right for another swarm to form and how we can address them head on. The problem is we are still dealing with climate change and this adds an entire new layer on top of trying to predict where the locusts will be next and how we can control them from growing out of control. But hopefully as our technology evolves, we can stay one step ahead and at least control the size of future swarms so they don't get out of control. If you want to help Dr. Keith Cressman, his team, the other national governments that they work with to try to coordinate locust control, the best way to do this is to write to your member of parliament, write to your senator, write to your congressman. If you make this a political issue, that's how we can best support national governments and the FAO who are operating in insecure regions around the world with limited resources in the battle against locusts. A large portion of their resources and their ability to actually operate in these areas is because of support from other nations. One of the most important things to help stabilize a country is to be able to ensure that everyone is fed. If we secure those basic necessities of life, then you can start to address other needs as well. So by raising this issue with your local representation, you can really make a difference. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any of our future episodes coming out sometime soon. Later this week, we'll be releasing our full deep dive episode with Dr. Keith Cressman, where you'll find out so much more about desert locusts, what's being done to prevent their spread, and the science behind it all. You won't want to miss it. I would just like to thank Dr. Keith Cressman for taking the time to speak with me about this really complex issue and making it really palatable and understandable. If you want to learn more about desert locusts and what's actually happening in real time 
and what Dr. Keith Cressman's predictions are going to be, then you need to check out his website, fao.org slash ag slash locust. It's called Locust Watch. And he publishes his predictions. There's interactive maps that actually show where the swarms are in real time, how big they are, and where they're going. It's super cool and fascinating. I highly recommend it. Very, very cool. But also just a little bit terrifying. I'm the host and producer, David Evans, and I would just like to thank the rest of the team from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, specifically to Paula Pullman, Sophie Cervera, Anna Bettini. Thanks for all of your help. To learn more about the Aquatic Biosphere Project and what we're doing here in Alberta, telling the story of water, check us out at aquaticbiosphere.ca. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, we'd love to hear them. Email us at conservation at aquariumsocietyofalberta.ca. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really helps us out. Thanks so much for coming on this journey with us. In two weeks will be our final episode of season one. Our final episode is going to focus on fish fraud. How 10% of the seafood that we buy or we get served in restaurants isn't even the fish it's supposed to be. We're getting taken for a ride a lot of the time when we go and buy our food. And it's not necessarily the grocery store's fault or the restaurant's fault. They're also being taken for a ride. The seafood supply chain is extremely complex. It's not as simple as going to a field, seeing cows, and then eating that cow later. There's so many different steps in catching, producing, and packaging fish. Before it gets to your plate, a lot of things can go wrong along that chain. So if you love seafood and you want to make sure that you're eating a sustainable product, not only from an environmental point of view, but also from a human point of view, so you don't have slave labor or anything involved with the production of that fish getting to your plate, you're going to want to listen to this episode. We go to the experts to get all of the insight on how to find sustainable options in seafood. Tune in, you won't want to miss it. Thanks and it's been a splash. 